Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Yeah? If we haven't met yet, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you. Some of you were like, wait, do I talk now or later? Like, okay, cool. We can talk. Um, we're we're going to be continuing in our series in Mark, Mark chapter 8, okay? Let's go to work. Grab your Bibles, grab your, your scripture journal, all that stuff. Um, I'd love for you to have that right in front of you. Our, our passage today is going to end with Jesus asking his disciples this question and no answer from them. He's going to say, do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? And then it kind of like scene breaks, moves on somewhere else. That, that question has, I've been wrestling with it as I've been studying this passage. And, and sometimes I really rag on the disciples where I'm like, yeah, guys, don't you get it? Like you saw it with your own eyes, right? You were in the boat when Jesus walked on water. How, how do you not get it? You, you, you experience miracles right in front of you. How do you not understand who Jesus is? You don't get it. Or, or I look at church history. I look at different times where, where it seems like Christians collectively have sort of just like not gotten it. We've like missed the plot. Like when, when Galileo is like, hey, maybe, I don't know, the earth rotates around the sun. The church is like, how dare you? Like, like, wait, guys, we've missed the main point of this thing. Don't you get it? That's not what this is about. Or the Crusades was like, guys, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? How do you go from turn the other cheek to, to this? Even slavery historically, I, I read about how missionaries would go to slaves in the West Indies. These, these men and women made in the image of God but kidnapped and forcibly oppressed and these missionaries that went brought edited Bibles that took out things like the Exodus because they didn't want them to get any ideas about, I don't know, like what God is like. Like it's, it's insane, right? You look back and sometimes you're like, guys, do we not understand? And, and maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You're like, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm not a Christian. Like these Christians are hypocrites. Let, let me just tell you, like this isn't so much a, a Bible problem as a people problem. You can't really get away from the people part of this. And one, one encouraging thing for me is that this book has stood as a, a corrective and challenge to, to people all over the world at every stage of history. It keeps redirecting and pointing back. There's not one culture that's been like, yeah, we totally got that right. Again, maybe this isn't a, a Bible problem, but a people problem. Maybe, maybe this you do not understand thing actually applies more broadly. Because as I was thinking about church history and as I was thinking about the disciples, I... I thought, what would happen if somebody in 100 years looked back at my life? Like, picture that, someone, someone 100 years in the future, 21, 23, they look back at, at me or you, if they looked at our church, what are the things that they would say, guys, don't, didn't you see it was black and white the whole time? Did you not get it? Or, or what are the things in your life that if, if Jesus were to just sit you down and have a conversation, would be like, hey, how, how did you miss it? It was right in front of you. I think our passage today is going to have some of that corrective, maybe out of step with our moment, but in line with eternity with what God's heart has been. And, and as I've been praying for us as a church and, and for myself, I've been praying that actually the, the things we're going to see in this particular passage are going to, to reroute and redirect our hearts to be more in line with what God has been saying the whole time. Some of this you're going to be like, yeah, duh, it was there the whole time, and that's exactly the point. But how do we go from knowing a few Bible stories but to actually being transformed? deeply, deeply as the people of God in the ways that God would have for us. You ready for that? Some say, yep. All right, Mark chapter 8. Some of you did not say, yep, but we're going there anyway. Mark chapter 8. Thanks, Larry. Verse 1. Okay, we're going to see three different scenes, three different audiences, and um, Jesus interacting with these three audiences differently that's going to kind of end in the disciples, this moment, this lingering question. 
So we're going to unpack each of those and then kind of summarize it and see what principles we can understand, the things for us to draw out that, that again, have been there the whole time in black and white, but maybe we've missed the implications. So, so let's start with the first scene, this, this crowd of Gentile people. You maybe got a, a subheading in your Bible that says, Jesus feeds the 4,000. This is going to look very similar to a couple weeks ago when Jesus fed an audience of, of 5,000 people. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, so, so we're in the same context as last week, Jesus is doing ministry to the Gentiles. He's kind of expanded out of Galilee, and, and he's going to different people than he used to, people that were far away from Israel culturally, religiously, socially. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. The, it's going to start looking very similar to what we've seen before. And Mark is trying to clue us in, like he says, again, a great crowd. He's trying to bring your mind back and go, this has happened before. I'm going to tell you a story that looks very similar, but don't gloss over it because you've heard it. Look at the details. Like, the details really matter. What, what makes this different than last time? This isn't just another one of those, but it's in God's word for a reason. This great crowd had gathered. They had nothing to eat. And he, Jesus, called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat compassion. Uh, again, like we saw a little bit ago, he, he had compassion on the last crowd too. His, his heart is moved. Jesus wasn't just kind of like floating through life dispensing wisdom, but he actually cared and felt for people. He engaged his heart with people. Even though he was God in flesh, he still chose to feel with people. He had compassion on this crowd. And one thing that's different about this audience, besides them being Gentiles, is, is the last time we saw Jesus multiply bread and fish and feed a crowd like this, They'd been with him for a day. This situation is a little bit more dire. They've been with him three days. So maybe some of them brought food or whatever, but after three days, they're hungry and there's nothing to eat. And last time, the disciples told Jesus to go send people away, but, but this time, Jesus is going to put the issue right in their face. He's going to press the point a little bit more. Again, verse 2, they've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. He's putting the issue in front of his disciples. He's saying, this is a problem, but he's inviting them in by showing them, showing them where he is going to show up. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, now again, this is one of those moments I get a little sassy with the disciples. I'm like, are you kidding me, guys? Like, two pages ago, Jesus did a miracle exactly like this. What do you mean, how could it? But I have to cool it down a little bit because I... Like, I know time and again in my life, God has, like, answered a prayer. He's shown up powerfully, and the next week, I'm like, yeah, but where are you, right? Like, I'm no better than the disciples in this. I, I think you're probably there with me. They, they ask him, like, how are we supposed to feed this people? How are we supposed to, to help here? In verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves. Having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. Someone say satisfied. Some of you aren't comfortable talking this morning. Someone say, ah. You know that full belly feeling? Ah. This wasn't like a couple crumbs. They were satisfied. Ah. Three days of being with Jesus in a desolate place, they've run out of food and miraculously a couple of loaves and a few fish turn into this ah moment. They're satisfied. They're filled. And again, this might sound like one of those cool things that Jesus does sometimes, but this is, this is insane, guys. 
If you're used to Bible stories, you're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus does stuff like this. Like, no, 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 this is wild that he did this. And the details are a little bit different for a reason. They ate and they were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 people he sent them away. Immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, before Jesus fed 5,000 people and there were 12 baskets left over, this time he feeds 4,000 people and there are seven baskets left over. He's going to draw out these points for his disciples at the end of our passage. So I, I want you to get these details before we get there so that we don't miss it too. And when you're reading this, you're like, man, only seven baskets, Jesus. Did you run out of juice? Like, are you a little tired today? Like, what's going on, man? The, again, the details are really important. As commentators look at this, as scholars look at this, they, they kind of say there are a couple things going on under the surface. Remember, this is a Gentile audience. These are not Jewish people. So when we saw Jesus feed the 5,000 and 12 baskets left over, that, that was showing that Jesus is the Messiah that had been promised to the Jewish people. He's the Savior that was coming, and, and these baskets were a sign of the age of the Savior coming. They were a sign to everyone that he is here, he is for you, he is for all the people of Israel. And now with this Gentile audience, he repeats the miracle, but it's slightly different. If the 12 before meant 12 tribes, kind of the 12 tribes of Israel showing the completion, what does the seven mean? Some would say, like, well, seven days of creation, it kind of means completion. It's showing that, that he can satisfy everyone. That's part of it. But again, the Gentile audience takes it a step deeper. In Genesis 10, there's this table of nations that lists out 70 different people groups representing the people of the whole world. Some scholars would say, hey, those seven baskets are pointing to this 70 number in the Old Testament. An Old Testament fluent audience was supposed to look at that and go, wait, wait, is he talking about the whole world here? Another note is that in the promised land, there were these seven Gentile kingdoms that were living there. Seven kingdoms and seven baskets. Jesus is trying to clue them in. I'm not just the savior for a specific group of people, but actually even those people that used to be far away, that used to be your enemies, that used to be distant from you socially, politically, ideologically, culturally, religiously, even those people, I'm coming to satisfy them too. We're going to keep going and see if we get it or if we miss it like the disciples do. But a new group of people shows up. He, he gets in this boat and he travels with his disciples and, and all of a sudden some, some familiar, um, maybe not friends, but some familiar folks come up on the scene. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, Pharisees, if, you, if you're familiar with this, they were the main kind of political and social group in, in everyday life. They're the ones that Jared talked about last week having this oral law, these, these traditions that they elevated up to the same level as God's word and sometimes above it. They would violate God's word because of their traditions that they, that they thought or they said were there to kind of protect and fence in God's word. But ultimately, it, was, it became a, a heart opportunity, an excuse to miss God's heart. This, this group of people has been sparring with Jesus the whole time. His public ministry has, has been a, a chance for them to try to put him in his place and put him down. And this is another one of those moments. They come arguing with him. And again, it's a seeking a sign from heaven to test him. They're going, okay, Jesus, if you're really the, the Messiah, do something for us. Do something miraculous. Really? You mean, you know, like besides, I don't know, casting on demons, multiplying bread and fish twice, like healing people? Yeah, you might not have been there for the walking on water bit, but you were there when I forgave the man of his sins and then told him to pick up his mat and walk. That was in front of your face. What more do you want? 
They're framing this as an eye problem. They're saying, we haven't seen enough. We haven't seen the sign from heaven. Just show us something and then we'll, we'll believe. But Jesus doesn't play that game because they've seen a lot of things. Maybe this isn't an eye problem. Maybe this is a heart problem. And let me just ask you, if you're not a Christian this morning, have you ever said something like, there's just not enough evidence in Christianity? I just haven't seen the evidence for it. I'm, I'm a logical thinker. There's just not enough evidence. Can I just ask you, maybe, maybe you don't have an eye problem, you have a heart problem. Maybe what you have been putting out there into the world and saying these are your reasons, it's actually a smoke screen to cover up what's really going on inside of you. I had a, had a beer with a guy one time who was doing his PhD in some science that was way above my head, physics or whatever, I don't know. Science, cool man. Um, and he's like, I'm a, I'm a scientific thinker. There's just not enough evidence for Christianity. And he'd had a few more drink than I had, so he was being a little bit honest. And I, I told him like, well, what evidence, what evidence would you need? You know, like if, if, if it's a lack of evidence, what evidence would, would change your mind? And he stopped for a second and he thought, I don't know. It, it had been a great um, kind of conversation stopper to say there's no evidence, but he had never considered if anything could actually disprove the thing that he believed. And Jesus is saying the same thing is going on in the hearts of these Pharisees. Look at verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. The, the Greek word could be like a groan deep inside, like, ah. Oh. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. When I read that sigh, that kind of caught me off guard. Someone sigh with me. <sighs> when I first read it, I'm like, man, Jesus, you're getting a little huffy over here. Like, oh, not again. Like an eye roll? Is there a secret eye roll in there with the, the Pharisees? But... Sometimes I can read into Jesus the, the, the feelings that I think he might have when I ask him questions. Like maybe if you read this and you kind of have a sassy version of Jesus, maybe, it, maybe you're worried when you ask Jesus questions, he's going to treat you that way. Again, he, I, I don't think he is just like being belligerent or writing them off. I, th I, think, I think it was closer to a heavy sigh of just <sighs> sadness. Sadness at their heart condition, sadness at them missing it, sadness that he had been doing so much right in front of them and they could not see. It reminds me when he went to his hometown just a couple chapters before and, and he didn't do miracles there because the, they were so busy writing the story of his life and saying there's no way that you could be the Messiah that he's like, it doesn't matter what I do. You're, you're missing the work of God in front of your eyes. And he moves on from there. And maybe in that sigh, he was thinking about the sign he was going to give of an empty tomb and what it would cost him at the end of this book. I don't know. But with a heavy heart, he moves on. And he's going he's gonna to try to help his disciples unpack and understand th this moment with the crowd and the moment with the Pharisees. He's going to try to show them, show them what he's been doing this whole time so they don't miss it like the Pharisees. And hopefully we don't miss it too. Let's look at verse 14. Now they, his disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. They were so busy putting it in baskets and, and like, you know, passing it along to other people, they forgot to put some in their pockets. They'd forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he, Jesus, cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven, 
is used different times in the New Testament. Leaven is like yeast. It's like a rising agent in bread or something like that. Sometimes it's used negatively like this. In another point in Matthew 13, Jesus uses it positively to talk about the kingdom. It's a parable here. It's a short kind of picture from life. I don't know if we got any bread bakers in the house, but leaven is not like a super common thing in my life. But for them, leaven would have been as, as common as seeing people scatter seeds in a field. They would have understood kind of what leaven was. But the thing about leaven is it, it spreads, like yeast spreads. If you've got a sourdough starter, if you're on that level of bread baking, or if you've got that little instant packets that I got at my house, like you know if you put that in some flour and mix it with some water, things start to happen. There's a reaction that happens. And you don't necessarily see it happening with your naked eye, but you see the result. You see it spread and grow, and by the time it started to spread, it's too late. You can't kind of like scoop out the, the, the leaven or the yeast. You can't take that part of it away. It's, it's spread, it's, it's multiplied, it's doing its work. It would have been really common for them because, again, they wouldn't have like production of yeast and things like that on an industrial scale. It would have been probably passed. Maybe, maybe within a family you'd have a starter or a culture or something like that you keep passing. And if there was a little bit in a bowl or some wild yeast or something got into your flour, you wouldn't necessarily know it until after it had done its work. And Jesus is saying, watch out, because there's something about the Pharisees and Herod or the Herodians that, that begins to spread and do its work imperceptibly until it's too late. We haven't talked a lot about Herod or the Herodians, his kind of people. Um, there's, there's one main scene of them in Mark that we, we didn't have time to go through, but he is this king under Rome that's the, called the Ethnarch. He was sort of a, a ruler over an ethnic group, the Jewish people. And the few details we get about him is he is impulsive, he's sexually immoral, he's like sleeping with his like brother's wife, and she's kind of power hungry too. Like it's, it's this whole jacked up family situation. I think it was his grandfather is the one that, that killed off all the babies when Jesus was a baby. This is a jacked up family. But it's, it's weird for Jesus to combine the Pharisees and the Herodians because they were at opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees were uptight, they were legalists, they, they were the religious police, and Herod is this dude with power and authority, but he is immoral, he's not walking in those ways. They wouldn't have gotten along. But Jesus says there's something, there's a, there's a heart condition, there's something about both of them that, that's actually similar. Even if on the surface they look different. The Pharisees and Herod had this self-reliant posture. This self-sufficiency when it came to finding the good life. When it came to seeking out what life was about and the purpose. And the Pharisees did that through religion. They created laws and systems so that they could feel good about who they were and what life was like. They could rank themselves and other people. They drew a circle around that. They said, this is what life is about. And Herod and his crew did that in, a, in the opposite fashion with the same heart. No, 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 the good life is about power and pleasure and, and parties and doing all this stuff. This, this is what life is about. Come join our team, come join our side. The same heart posture expressed completely different on opposite ends of the spectrum, but Jesus is saying, watch out for it. And in fact, this is not the first time they've been drawn together. All the way back in chapter three, verse six, these two groups have been conspiring since then to destroy Jesus. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't play the religious game he doesn't play the power and pleasure game over here. He does something completely different. He challenges both. And so natural enemies, people that, that wouldn't hang out, that wouldn't get along, that, that wouldn't even go to dinner parties together, they can all of a sudden become friends when it's time to be against Jesus. But he's telling his disciples, watch out for, 
for that self-sufficient, self-reliant spirit. You might never join the, the party of the Pharisees or, or Herod's crew, but man, you might have that same leaven, that same heart condition that spreads and infects imperceptibly until it's too late. But they don't get it. Look at verse 16. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're like, geez, Jesus is being passive aggressive. He's like, wow, you guys don't like bread. I got some more leaven for you. Like, they, 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 don't, they don't get it at all. They, they miss what Jesus is trying to say here. And Jesus is going to hit them with a series of rhetorical questions trying to drill down in their hearts so that they can see. He's not just hangry. He's not just frustrated they didn't bring bread. He's trying to help them see something here. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? And that's it. The scene changes. Mark moves on his story to, a, to another location. They're left with this question, don't you get it? Jesus is saying things like, hey, you have eyes in your head, I know you do, and, and you saw these things firsthand, how are you missing it? You've been hearing me talk to you and, and unpack for you and speak to crowds, how are you not hearing it? And he puts these two miraculous feedings right in front of their face. He, he combines those two to go, hey, do you see what I'm doing with these two miracles here? Don't you get it? And I think Mark leaves it with this kind of hanging question for a reason. I think he leaves it like that because, because he's inviting us to ask that question too. Do you get it? Do you understand or are you missing it? Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Do you not remember? Let, let me just summarize the three scenes we've seen here and draw kind of the point I think he's making. And then I'm gonna unpack the implications for us as a church, those things that, that I worry I might be missing and that you might be missing with me, okay? So the first scene, again, is this feeding of the Gentiles. Jesus is, is doing a parallel to his, his feeding of the Jewish people. He's showing that he is the Messiah, the Savior for all people. He, he's the one that actually is gonna satisfy and give them that Ah, moment their souls were made for. And then with these Pharisees, they have a heart condition, even though they think they have an eye condition. It doesn't matter what Jesus does in front of them, they don't want to see it, and so they're not going to see it. And Jesus draws that out and says, watch out for the leaven, the self-sufficient spirit that can grow and infect everything inside of you. Don't miss that. Do you understand what I've been doing this whole time? I think to put it simply, to put a simple point on our passage is this. Jesus is the Savior for all people. Jesus is the Savior for all people. And now listen, this is what might be happening in your spirit right now. You might be going like, duh. Like, you might be like, okay, that's so, yeah, that's so simple. And, and that's the thing about it where we might miss it. Like, that's actually the spot, where that, that level of, like, familiarity or duh with this idea where we might actually miss it. Again, I, I don't think historically people would have said, like, yeah, yeah, the, the organization of the solar system is the main point. 
I don't think they would have said like, oh no, I'm not supposed to turn my cheek. I, I don't think they would have missed it like that, but the implications they would have missed. And I worry we might be doing that too. I've got kind of three implications for us from this passage. The first one is around this idea of Jesus being the Savior for all people. Someone say all. All people. Not just the, the religious people, not just the Jewish people, not just the church people, but all people. That means it doesn't matter your background or your station in life or your position. It doesn't matter how far away you've been. You could actually meet your Savior. And one of the, the ways that he describes himself in this through the word is, is satisfaction. You and I, we actually crave satisfaction in our souls. You crave that ah, moment. You do, whether it's a good meal or a vacation or whatever, you, you desire that and you long for that satisfaction. And Augustine, the church father, said, my soul was restless until it found its rest in you, God. You were made for that ah, moment. and your life has been a story of you chasing that. You've been chasing it through a paycheck or a vacation or a relationship. You've been chasing that satisfaction of your soul and the sin in your life is bitter fruit born by that root need and desire inside of you. Maybe you even came here this morning partially because someone was like, come on, just come with me, but, but you know inside that what you've been doing has not been working. And listen to me, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is all we got to offer you. We don't have anything better to offer you than this. We got great music and cool community and trampolines and blah, blah, whatever. But we're going to keep coming back to this point because this is all we got to offer you. The satisfaction of your soul found in Jesus. Stop trying to clean up your life before you come to him. Or, or don't think you can sort of add in a little Jesus and hope that that deals with some problems on the side. He wants to be the Lord and Savior, the satisfaction of your soul. And when you find your satisfaction in him, he begins to rewire and reorient everything. Because that's who he is. He is Lord. And he proved it by dying on the cross to pay for your sin and rising to life. Don't you get it? Do you not yet see this is what you were made for? And listen to me, if you have not accepted Jesus being the satisfaction of your soul, if you've been trying to add in a little church or a little religion or a little whatever, would you stop playing that game this morning? Like, why are you waiting? What are you waiting for today? You could right now experience Jesus as your Savior. Not just a Savior or, or a teacher, but actually the one that you were made to be in relationship with. And Christians in the room, like, I worry this is one of those things in a hundred years people will look back and go, man, didn't you guys get it? Jesus was supposed to be your satisfaction. But I don't know if we are a people who are satisfied. I think we live in an age where the enemy of our satisfaction is our distraction. We're distracted and pulled and torn by so many different things. We can say with our lips on a Sunday morning, man, I'm longing for heaven. I can't wait to be with Jesus. But we live throughout our week like heaven is, is the next paycheck or the next party, the next date or the next vacation or that perfect Instagram picture of your feet on the beach with the sun because you're going to get likes and comments because then finally maybe you'll feel a little something. Like We live in an age where we are so distracted away from the satisfaction in God. 
You see that. You, see, you experience that. Even as I was studying this passage, I, I was convicted that these people spent three days listening to Jesus talk, and sometimes it's hard for me to spend 30 minutes. Again, the enemy of your satisfaction might not be really clear and obvious and apparent, but it shows up in your distraction and those things that have been getting your attention and your eyes this whole time. And some of that is clear and obvious, like advertising that's trying to provoke dissatisfaction with your life right now. Other times it's the people you're surrounding yourself with where you're trying to compete to see who has the more obviously satisfying life from the outside. But friends, I think we might be missing that Jesus has been offering it to us the whole time. How do you cultivate satisfaction in Jesus? I think one thing we need to start doing is diagnosing the distraction that we feel. I'm just gonna offer you something a little bit radical. Like what if this week you tried to cut out just for a week the things that have been distracting you? Those places where you've been receiving the most signals that you should be dissatisfied. Like literally, what if you spent a week off of Instagram or off of YouTube and getting stuck in rabbit holes? Or, or what if you stopped watching news for the week? Would the world crumble? What if you stopped endlessly swiping and searching and, and looking on your phone with every dull moment being drawn into a, a black hole of dissatisfaction? And let me just tell you, if it sounds completely unrealistic to be off Instagram or like YouTube for a week, look at that. Just observe that for a minute, okay? If that sounds like hell to you, okay, deal with Jesus. Talk about it later, okay. That, that first piece, I think the thing that we are missing that Jesus has been offering the whole time is satisfaction. And our world needs to see a group of people who are satisfied in something because we live in a distracted and therefore dissatisfied culture. I think that's the first implication. I think the second implication is this, um, this, this thing that the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians was talking about. Like it's division. We are so used to drawing a little circle around the people that are similar to us. And this has become so much easier with the internet because those people don't even have to live anywhere near you, but they could listen to the same podcasts and read the same books and watch the same videos and, and think and believe exactly like you. It could be politically, it could be ethnically, it could be ideologically, it could just be a, a hobby that you're like, man, this is the thing. But we're used to drawing all of these little circles around ourselves, and there's a clear in and a clear out. Can you, can you put up some circles on the screen for me? I think this is, it. if you were to take a step back, maybe in 100 years and look at our age, our age would look like this. Different, distracted, divided circles. I know who's in and out because we think the same. And we all listen to the same podcasts. And, and I'm going to listen to the people that keep thinking like me and talking like me. We live in all of these echo chambers. All of us do that. That's just a, that's a symptom of our age. And I think if we're honest with it, so much of what we're, we're, we're taught in these little circles is, hey, this is the path to the good life. The world would be a better place if, if more people just thought like us. If, if more people believed what I believe, then the world would be a better place and it becomes this self-righteous, self-reliant kind of spirit that looked a lot like the Pharisees or Herod. Now again, the Pharisees and Herod, they'd be at totally opposite ends of the spectrum. They wouldn't look anything alike and yet the spirit, the leaven was the same. You don't have to believe the same thing as someone else have the same heart condition, the same issue as them. You might believe completely opposite things and have the same heart condition just like them. 
But here's another implication in this passage. If Jesus is the Savior for all people, then, then there is a clear in and out, but it's different than what we've been doing this whole time. Can you, can you show me? Jesus draws a new kind of circle. And it's a circle that would have been really um, off-putting for some. Because when he shows that he is the Messiah for the Gentile people, that offended some. Even though that had been the plan of God for the entire Bible. You think all the way back before the promise to Abraham, there was a promise to Adam that a savior would come to be the one to save people. Not just some people, but, but whoever would trust in him. Now, there is a clear in and out, but it's through faith in Jesus. And again, the storyline of scripture bears witness to this. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, the city gonna be conquered. She is included in the people of God by faith. Ruth, the Moabite, the historic enemy of the Jewish people is brought in. She's brought into the lineage and bloodline of, of Jesus by faith. Even as Israel was leaving Egypt with the Exodus, as God has shown his judgment on Pharaoh and their, their gods, all of that, there is a mixed company coming out of Egypt. Have you noticed that? Anyone who wanted to be with the God of Israel was in by faith. And now imagine if these people were saying, hey, I want to be with your God. I don't know him, but I want him. And an Israelite person said, no. You haven't done enough to clean yourself up first. You can't come. Like, you don't think like me. You don't, you don't get to be in here. If they had been gatekeepers and drawn a line that God had not drawn, they would have missed what God was trying to do the whole time, draw people to himself by faith. Here's where I think we miss this. I think we can feel unity in the gospel with people that already think like us and act like us, and, and we can enjoy our part of the circle, but sometimes, sometimes you might feel more unity with somebody who's in a small circle with you, but who's not actually in the family of God with you. Like if you feel more comfortable and more at home with somebody who shares now with you, but who is not going to share eternity with you, maybe, just maybe you're missing out on what God has for you. And if there's another believer in this room who would land in a completely different small circle in you, but they're in with Jesus, and maybe, just maybe, Jesus is inviting you to a new kind of unity that stands at odds with the division of our age. But if in your heart of hearts you look at another circle and you go, we could never be family, you might want to deal with that because the, the dining table in eternity might feel a little awkward for you. If they're in with Jesus by faith, but they're not in with you because you have a different circle, you might need to start dealing with that. And that's hard because in this moment, the leaven that we have been given, the thing that is saturating and infecting us is saying, you gotta be like me to be with me when Jesus is saying, no, you have to be with me. And it's only by grace through faith. And I'm telling you, there are people in this room that are gonna vote differently they're going to listen to different music. They're going to do different things on the weekends. They're going to have different worldviews in a lot of ways. But, but we can be drawn to a new family because it's not about us becoming more like each other, but all of us becoming more in love with Jesus and being the people he calls us to be. You don't even have to fully agree with each other, right? Like you don't even have to, to actually see the world through that other person's eyes necessarily. But if you can see that Jesus loves them and they love Jesus, you can start to become family. And maybe instead of it being an us versus them thing, you could look at a believer and start to love them in a very different circle than you, but who's in with Jesus. And as you start to love them, you could actually begin to reach people that are like them too. 
instead of being a stumbling block as they're on mission. There's a lot we could get into this, but we live in a divided age. We live in an age of the the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Opposite ends of the spectrum, but the same heart of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. This is the path to the good life and missing Jesus. Have you missed the unity that Jesus is inviting you into? The unity that, that overwhelmed the division between Jew and Gentile. Have we introduced new divisions and, and we allow them to foster even in our own church? Bless you. I think the last implication we got, the last thing we need to see is Jesus is a savior for all people. And that all people has a global reach. When Jesus sends out his disciples at the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Someone say all. If the the table of nations, those 70 nations, is in view with this multiplication miracle, then I think they would have have heard Jesus say, go to all nations. They would have remembered moments like this when Jesus had been telling them the whole time his gospel has a global reach. And, And many of you are plugged into that. Many of you are praying and and giving to be part of it, but let me just say, I I think for most of us, the thing that gets in the way of us being part of God's global plan is our small dreams. Because to be part of God's dream, it's gonna cost you your dream. To be part of God's dream and what he's doing around the world, it might actually cost you some of the dreams you had for yourself. If you start giving like crazy for the gospel to go forward across the world, that might actually cramp your style a little bit. Or if you were to go and share the gospel with somebody that that maybe is gonna live and die with no Christian witness in their life, that might change the plans that you have for yourself. Are your dreams stopping you from being part of God's dream? In a hundred years, are people gonna look back at this moment and go, guys, you had so much opportunity. You had people from all over the world coming to Madison you could have welcomed and loved and shared the gospel with. You could literally get on a plane today and go land in a city where people are being born and they live their whole life and they die without meeting a Christian. You could go share the gospel with them right now and you missed it. Like who knows what's gonna happen in 10 or 15 years politically or in the world or or whatever. We might not have the access we have now to go and to share the good news. And I'm not saying this to shame us, but I'm, I'm saying this to awaken our imagination to a bigger dream that God might have for us. Why, why not go? Like literally, what is stopping you from going across the world to share the good news with someone in Japan or Indonesia or India or Iraq or Palestine? What, what is stopping you? Is it because your dreams are too small? Is it because you have bought into the lies of this moment that that the American dream or the dream of the job or the house of the whatever, that that was enough for you? And I'm not saying everyone has to go. I'm definitely not saying that, but someone's got to go. And and the rest of us have got to give like crazy so they get to go and and welcome the people from those places who, who have come here and be part of telling more people that we get to be part of God's dream for people all around the world to find satisfaction in Jesus. We could be part of that. Isn't that worth it for us? Wouldn't that be worth it for us to be part of? Isn't that a dream worth your life and worth this church? If Jesus is the Savior for all people, why would we settle for anything less? Why would you hold up another dream in front of your life that's so much smaller than that? 
Again, maybe you need to go. Maybe your kid needs to go. Will you let them? Maybe you need to begin praying and, and ask Nicole about the Global Prayer Newsletter and start, start engaging your heart and your imagination in what God could do. Maybe you need to find a way to give a little bit more money just to free someone else to go because, listen, in the past, people would pack up their whole life in a coffin to do a one-way trip in a boat to go share the gospel with somebody when, when you and I could go spend a year or a week telling people about Jesus with no access. Docs, I think these three implications have been here the whole time satisfaction in Jesus in an age of distraction, unity in Jesus in an age of division, and God-sized dreams. We've been offered really small dreams. What would happen if we, if we did understand? What would happen if together we started to grow to be people that actually understood and walked out what Jesus had for us? I think we would pass the torch to the next generation to the churches to come after us, to the generations to come after us, not because we've done it perfectly, but because we've continued to submit ourselves to this word and to Jesus and be corrected by him and say, hey, you take it now. You take it now and find satisfaction and unity and God-sized dreams like we've been this whole time. And I think we would enter into eternity with our maker and he would say, well done, you got it. Let's pray and invite him to do that work more and more in us as a church today. Let's pray. Jesus, with my friends here, I want to repent of the distraction and the division and the small dreams that I've been living in. I want to turn from feeling like I've got to be in step with this age and with this moment when, when so often that means missing what you've been saying the whole time. And Spirit, would you convict us and draw us to the incredible hope we have in Jesus, the satisfaction for our souls. That, and Jesus, would you reroute and reorient everything about us in a way that, that lines us up with your heart? We need you. We trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Doc says, we, as we respond to the word, we're going to take communion. And communion is this. Um, this sign and this symbol that Jesus gave us of all three of the things we saw in this passage. We eat a meal together as a family to show that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the satisfaction that we were made for. We share a common table and a common cup because Jesus is our unity, not our ethnicity or our politics or whatever. And we share this same meal that, that believers around the world throughout time have shared because, because we are a new kind of global family. That's God's dream. Men and women from every nation unified in him. And so over the next couple songs, I just want to invite you to take a moment and, and do business with God. Repent of those ways that you have been missing out on what he's been showing the whole time. And in response to that, accept the grace that you are freely loved because of him and not you. And then go to the table and celebrate what he's been doing this whole time as we look at our good God and Savior and worship him.